Welcome to the AdWoke Podcast. My name is Brett Craig, and here's my story. I'm a former chief creative officer that worked at two of the biggest ad agencies on the West Coast for some of the most famous brands in the world. About two years ago, I was canceled for a five-year-old casting email that someone posted on Instagram. I used some imperfect language. It was taken out of context, and it all happened in the middle of the racial tensions of 2020. The social media mobbing that ensued in the comment section below my email posted on Instagram caused me to lose my job and to be called some rather ugly names that I never thought I'd be called. Suddenly, I went from the top of my career to no career at all. Canceled. Even friends that supported me privately wouldn't come near me publicly. I'm a Christian, and I do believe that God is working all things together for my good, but it was quite honestly one of the most devastating experiences of my life. But it was also strangely liberating. I woke up to a new world, full of uncertainty, but also full of opportunity. The opportunity to do something in short supply in the corporate world today. Tell the truth. I no longer had to be conflicted promoting ideas I don't agree with. And in these times of deceit, I counted a privilege to be able to speak honestly. That's what the AdWoke podcast is all about. I'm going to give it to you straight. We're going to occasionally laugh, and I'm going to say the things you're not allowed to say. Not because I just want to be provocative, although the truth is often provocative, but because I believe the truth will set you free. Welcome to the AdWoke Podcast. A little while ago, I um, actually put out an article entitled, The Drugs Don't Work. And what the article was about was a sort of a refutation and a response to an AdWeek article that I saw. And when someone sent it to me... uh, personal friend of mine that was in the ad industry world still uh, I just could not believe I couldn't believe this headline just couldn't um, the headline said why creatives should microdose LSD and cannabis before big pitches pitches and um, just a shocking headline to me because uh, it was just so irresponsible and so um, tone-deaf uh, now, I talked to a friend the other day uh, who is in the ad business as well, and he said, you realize nobody reads ad age. You realize that, like, no one pays attention to it. And I know that there's some truth to that because if I go on social media, like particularly Twitter, and I look at ad week or ad age's tweets and I follow them both, there, there's, like, if they tweet, like, maybe one person actually hearts it, but usually nobody. Like, nobody responds to anything they say. And I think it's an indication of how dead uh, the advertising industry is at this point, which is kind of sad because I came up in it and it was such a fun industry and had such a profound cultural impact. Um, but anyway, I think because the industry creativity has suffered so much, it's so, um, the work is not very interesting. Uh, the world's not really paying attention to the advertising world the way it used to. Um, there could be a million reasons for that, but partly I think because the work isn't good. Um, so I think they're making articles like this, like this article that says why creatives should microdose LSD and cannabis before big pitches. Um, and again, just like the worst advice that anybody could ever give you. And it's not just coming from like, um, you know, some dorm room friend in college who likes to drop LSD or smoke weed. It's coming from the industry publication for advertising and marketing uh, ad age. And so when I saw this thing, like I said, I was it was so it, it shocked me that this is what passes for journalism at ad age, uh, and I realize it's because nobody's reading it probably, and it's an irrelevant publication, and so they're trying to get uh, people to pay attention to it. Um, in any case, if you read the article and 
go ahead and read it. Uh, it's hard to believe it's not like a Babylon Bee headline or an Onion headline. Um, it goes on and it talks to some different, like, supposed experts on this stuff or I don't know, and, and, and asks them their advice on this. And they go on to say that there's supposedly these benefits of putting yourself in an altered state by microdosing LSD and cannabis before pitch meetings. And again, as a person that was a chief creative officer and, and was an executive creative director for many years, I just I wanted to re- personally rebut this uh, assertion because I, I partly think that what's happened in advertising and it's happened in corporate life altogether is an, a total abdication of leadership. Uh, and I could just, on so many levels, and you guys have heard me talk a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion, um, that's an abdication of leadership. The fact that corporate leaders have allowed a system into the building which tells people to judge others by race is disgusting and, and shameful. But it's not the only way that corporate uh, leaders have failed their employees in the last couple of years. Um, then we had a, a, a vaccine mandate in which Fortune 500 companies, almost every one of them, with with a few rare exceptions, just just completely capitulated to this idea that you no longer have bodily autonomy. And in fact, if you won't give up your bodily autonomy, we're going to take your well-being from you. We're going to take your job from you. And so they forced these experimental injections into people. And I don't know if you're paying attention to the news, but there's problems. There's actually problems emerging with it um, because it was rushed. And, uh, and as much as Big Pharma doesn't want us to talk about it, and as much as Probably big corporations don't want us to talk about it, and the media doesn't want us to talk about it because the disaster of it is so is almost too frightening to consider that we forced millions of people in the working class, uh, white-collar working class, and in the blue-collar working class, from policemen to firemen, but also the white-collar work, you know, working class and corporations, we forced them to put something in their body against their will. And this was all done under the supervision of all these leaders that none of them would speak up for the most part. And and I get it. I know why. They're afraid for their jobs. It's the same old story. But into this mix comes an article, an ad age, that tells you, you know what, guys? And I just think about the young employees when I look at this headline. You know what would be really great is if you, if you microdosed LSD and got stoned before meetings. And the reason this article especially... Uh, is offensive to me is because I know as somebody who came up in this business, and that's kind of what I want to talk to you guys about today. Um, and, and I want to ho- hopefully give you uh, maybe some maybe some tougher advice on this issue of presenting in meetings as creatives or any corporate person of, of any kind. Um, as someone that was often told uh, I present well, uh, I want to talk about how hard it is to present well and how much I struggled with presenting and how much of a lie it is to say there's some shortcut to being a good presenter like getting stoned or uh, you know, using LSD even in micro doses like this Ad Age article is recommending or using alcohol, which is what I did. And so I wanted to tell that story um, because I do feel like there's a there's a dearth of leadership inside of corporate America, a dearth of leadership in the advertising industry. There's certainly a dearth of leadership and sobriety <laughs> and any kind of wisdom over at Ad Age. Um, and, and so I just want to talk about um, uh, my own story and, and dealing with public speaking fears and just um, the anxiety that comes with that, uh, particularly if you're ambitious and you, you want to move up. And now probably you guys are doing it more on Zoom and you're doing it more on video. But you're still going to have to be able to speak in front of large groups of people if you're going to uh, be successful uh, at any level of any corporation and any um, ad agency. And so 
the, I, the temptation, I guess I would say, um, is to believe an article like this ad age uh, article that, that when you have anxiety and when you have fear around speaking and presenting yourself in a meeting and presenting your ideas, that perhaps there is a, um, there is a drug or something that can help you out of that. And, and so I've learned and I've been doing it, you know, for 20 something years and I still, you know, struggle with that anxiety because I think it's, it's a constant challenge for people that, that deal with that. And I think most people deal with it, by the way, it's the number one fear in America, uh, even ahead of uh, dying apparently uh, is public speaking. So it's, it's a real fear. And most people that say they don't have any fear of it, I think it's bravado. I think everybody, when there's money on the line, uh, when there's a big idea on the line, or even just your own ego and pride on the line, gets nervous when they have to publicly speak. And so this is about um, how to properly deal with that. And I want to tell that story. So in, in 2001, I worked for TBWA Shiat Day. And, and by the way, I wrote this as an article and I'm, I'm, taking you guys through it as a podcast because some people don't want to read uh, and I don't blame them because sometimes you'd like to just take a walk and listen to something but it was 2001 I worked for TBWA Shiat Day and this was my dream job this was uh, the place I always wanted to be I, I was fortunate enough to get in there as a junior copywriter this is when they had Apple well actually they, the Media Arts Lab still has Apple uh, one of the agencies that has sprung out of TBWA Shiat Day but they had all these big clients Nissan um just great work that they had been doing. And and so at that time, I got in there. I was lucky. And at the time, I, I was fortunate enough, my, my partner and I, we had managed to catch the eye of the infamous, or should I say famous, Lee Clow, who uh, was a great boss and, a, and a, probably the greatest, one of the greatest creatives of all time. I guess that's arguable. But I don't think anybody would not put Lee in the top five all time. Uh, creatives and advertising. And Lee tapped me, strangely enough, as a junior creative. So this is like, I'm very young. I'm just entered the building. I'm in awe of everybody around me. And he taps me to present in a meeting for a hundred million dollar account known as XM Satellite Radio, which exists today as Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Now, there was just one problem. I was absolutely freaked out. Uh, I was so scared, kind of to the point of paralysis. You know how when you get really freaked out about something in your life uh, that's really in your dome, like really in your kitchen, uh, in your mind, and you just can't stop thinking about it? Well, that was me. And so I, I naturally have this terribly sort of um, just fundamental fear of, of presenting uh, that it's always been with me, you know, and and uh, we could psychoanalyze that and try to disco- discover where that comes from, but it is what it is. Uh, and so I'm I'm quite extroverted and one-on-one. Um, nobody would ever say that about me. I, I don't know how many times people would hear that about me and find that shocking and they would never believe it. But if you put me in front of a big room, uh, when something's on the line like a big $100 million pitch, I tend to psych myself out. I don't know if you can relate to that, but... Uh, again, people seem shocked when I tell them that, but it's true. And so, so in order to uh, cope with this fear, uh, my first attempt, and this is where we get back to the advice that the Ad Age article gave us, that you ought to drop LSD and smoke weed to get through uh, presenting um, or to enhance your presenting, I guess. Uh, the, the way that I coped with that fear myself is I, f- I first tried to use alcohol. And I did that because I believed it might help me get through that pitch. 
that $100 million pitch in which Lee was going to be sitting in the room and all these other big leaders. Uh, and at the time, I wanted badly to impress Lee Clow, and I wanted badly to impress all the other TBWA, Chiate Brass, that were going to be in that meeting. And I obviously desperately wanted to succeed. I was at my dream agency, and I wanted to climb that ladder, and I wanted to be uh, somebody that um, made an impact at that agency. And so I was very excited about that. But maybe even more tellingly than all of that, I desperately wanted not to fail, which I think is a lot where public speaking fear comes from, right? It's like, we really just, we're really just like, I don't want to fail. I just don't want to get up there and barf all over myself and make a fool of myself. And so I decided that my answer to that, because I had noticed when I had drink in other settings, that drinking kind of eases the stress, right? It's kind of a social lubricant. And I thought I would try drinking to help cope with the stress of this massive $100 million presentation. And I had kind of heard wrongly, as it turns out, that vodka can't be smelled on your breath. Well, as, as it turns out, it can be smelled on your breath, vodka. So don't believe that when someone tells you that. Of course, I knew that alcohol uh, was going to sort of dull my inhibitions because it had done that to me before, as I said, and I figured that that wouldn't hurt. So right before this giant presentation, uh, you won't believe that I did this, but this is what I did. It was in a hotel, just so, so happened that it was in a hotel I walked back up into my room, and this is like a half an hour before the presentation, and guess what I did? I went and opened up the vodka in my little uh, refrigerator. I probably did two or three of them, I think, and just poured them out into some orange juice and a glass, and I just gulped it down. And guess what happened? Within a few minutes, the familiar rush of warmth in my toes and hands and head made me feel super confident all of a sudden, made me feel like, hey, I can do this. I can walk down to that room and I can I can win this pitch with my idea. Uh, and so suddenly I was feeling liquid courage, as they call it, and I did. I walked, down, uh, waltzed down back into the pitch room in front of the president of TBWA, in front of Lee Clow, in front of this giant boardroom full of bigwigs, for $100 million, and they had actually, at the time, it was funny, they had put me up in front of the room with another well-known creative, because I think they were like, well, in case this junior like creative kind of falls on his face, we better have this guy there to pick him up. Uh, and I went back into the room and and uh, buzzed, and I crushed it. I just killed the presentation. And in fact, that creative that they put there to kind of back me up. He never spoke. You know, I think he spoke one sentence and then I just kind of picked it up again because I was in such a flow. You know how that is when you're, when you are doing good in a presentation, you can get in the zone and I was in the zone and I was buzzed. Uh, and I nailed the presentation and it was, uh, what I wrote in my article. And I, I would just say this again, nailing the presentation three drinks in was the absolute worst thing that could have happened to me. I know it doesn't sound like it would have been, uh, but the truth is it was because it was in this moment that I had unknowingly struck a deal with the devil uh, and I had killed the meeting, right? But then what's next? How does your mind work? Well, how did I do good in the meeting? Well, the answer to that is I got drunk or I got buzzed, right? Um, Yeah, I was able to get a $100 million account in the door. uh, And that's the the end of that story is we won a $100 million account. I was able to impress Lee Clow. Uh, and everybody thought I was something special and some up-and-comer at TBWA Shiat Day, and that felt great, right? 
But unfortunately, it wasn't me, I don't feel, that won that account or helped win that account. Because there was other ideas in the room that helped us win. It wasn't just me um, by any means. But it wasn't me. The part that I played in that meeting, it was uh, some version of me that is socially lubricated by alcohol that helped win that account. And and it leaves you with questions, right? That's that's one of the things I want to point out about when you take substances to help your performance. The, the question I had leaving the meeting was, was that me? Was it the substance? Was it the vodka? Uh, and, and who was more responsible for the su- success of that meeting? Where do I end and the vodka begins? Uh, and that question just kind of stuck with me after that meeting. Uh, and, and the truth is you can't totally answer it, right? Like it's hard to know. Um, you know, where, where your role in that is or the substance's role in that. And that's actually a problem. No doubt that was me performing in that room before those C-suite executives, those people that I admired and respect, but it, but it was a buzzed version of me and it was an emboldened by a chemical version of me. And I couldn't say to myself, honestly, in the mirror after the end of that meeting that the real me delivered that presentation, right? Because it wasn't. It was an an inhibited me. It was, or an uninhibited, I guess you could say, uh, via uh, a substance that helped me, or at least seemed to help me at the time, deliver a a more charismatic presentation, which at this point you're going, well, Brett, how does this not uh, reinforce what AdAge is saying in their article? I mean, maybe if I microdose LSD and if I take cannabis or whatever your substance is, and it could be anything, you just delivered the meeting. You were able to deliver the account back to the agency because you were altered. Well, let me go on and explain more. So now what I was doing uh, at the time, and I think this is often the case uh, for so many people who get hooked on any substance, uh, it, I was using alcohol to deal with a, just a common anxiety. And that in this case for me, it was public speaking. And in like so many people that use anything, I just wanted a Band-Aid. I wanted a quick pill, right? Something that would quickly fix the situation when I was in. And I wanted something to make that anxiety that bordered on sheer terror. I just wanted it to go away. And I thought that this alcohol would make it easier. Uh, you know, and so, and I only point that out that it's like often the case that we, whether it's prescription medic, uh, medicines or prescription drugs or drugs that you get on the street corner or abuse of alcohol, or abuse of cannabis, abuse, abuse of LSD, whatever it could be, it, can, it could be anything today, and so many things, often you're, you're doing it, maybe you did it as recreational in the beginning when you were young, uh, maybe even do, some people do that for recreation now, but often what ends up happening, right, is those substances become a crutch later when the sort of sort of hardness of life, the hardships of life, the challenges of life, the anxieties of life, which we've had a lot of, right, in the last two years uh, since COVID came in and we look at the world and we feel anxiety. And it's really easy for those substances to kind of slip in to our life and become go from being something recreational that we think we have control over to that thing moving very subtly to having complete control over us. Um, and so that's what happened to me. Uh, the problem started to come immediately after this successful meeting. And that's why I say I made a deal with the devil because that's what these Faustian bargains always are, right? You think you walked away with the win, but you're actually uh, the loser. And so at this point, and this is really interesting, is, is and, and, and I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about this, kind of a famous uh, psychiatrist, 
but I think he describes it perfectly. What I found after this is that I found my world began to shrink. Um, I had found that alcohol had become, in, in my mind, sort of the key to my public speaking success. You know, if, if it could lubricate my social interactions on Friday night, uh, then w- why couldn't it do that for all my social interactions? And, and of course, you tell yourself all these stories, and I know some of you out there can relate to this. You tell yourself stories that you can sort of keep it under control. You can kind of quarantine it to this part of your life. Uh, you know, and these are the stories I started telling myself. I started to say to myself, well, you know, I could just, uh, maybe I'll just drink before key meetings. Um, you know, just a little vodka once in a while. Uh, and this is what I mean by your world shrinking. You know, and I'd tell myself that it'll be okay. It's just, this meeting's a little stressful. So if it worked in that big XM meeting, um, you know, surely I could have a little bit before this meeting. And yeah, it's a little bit cumbersome and it's a little bit awkward. And But with a little effort, and a little bit of vodka, I can sort of just navigate my career like this, right? And just like that, what I was becoming, and I I, I realized this later, I was just becoming an alcoholic, right? Because what else is an alcoholic? What else is anybody who's dependent on drugs um, to get through life? What else are they? But they're they're drug dependent, right? They're they're that's an alcoholic. I can't cope with life unless I have alcohol. Uh, And I think this is the trap of drug use. Like I said, it creeps into more and more of your life uh, and it creeps in because what are you doing? Well, it might have been recreation in the beginning, but now it is how do I control my anxiety? How do I control? And your anxiety probably looks different from mine. Some of you have no trouble public speaking or you have no trouble uh, flying on planes and other people are petrified of public speaking and flying on planes. And that recreational drug moves from that recreational space oftentimes into, hey, this is how I control and mitigate my fear. And so that is what had happened to me. I began to think that drinking alcohol was not just the answer to big meetings. In my mind, it was becoming the consideration I had to make before any meeting in which I had to present. And this is what I meant, again, by my world shrinking. Soon, I found that I was beginning to be preoccupied with my fear, right? Uh, two things were happening. One, I was thinking about it all the time now, uh, this fear of public speaking, even more. And I was starting to sort of be fearful of more and more situations where I would have to speak. Um, but then I also was thinking a lot about how I would mitigate that fear and and, and how I was going to slip alcohol into that situation. Because honestly, like at 9 a.m. in the morning, 10 a.m. in the morning, how practical is it to drink before meetings? That that XM pitch was very unique. I was in a hotel. I had time to go up to my room. It was later in the afternoon. It led right into an evening of drinking. Um, so it, most of the time, it's not like that, right? So within a month or so of this XM satellite radio pitch, I found myself asked to present to another client. Now, this time, it was going to be by conference call. And this is, again, what I mean by my world was shrinking. The conference call now scared me. It's like my world was getting smaller, right? What if I couldn't perform on this conference call? What if I froze? And again, I started to believe that I needed this alcohol to, to, to do this, right? And so not long after the original pitch, once again, I turned to my newfound formula for success. And I pounded a mini shot bottle of vodka at my desk. I'll never forget. I was, remember sitting in the office upstairs on the third level, I pounded that little bottle of vodka, you know, those little ones that they give to you on the plane. And it was 9 a.m. in the morning. And I am slamming vodka <laughs> at my work all to get through a phone call presentation now. That's where my world's gotten to, right? And now here's, just as 
it was the worst possible thing that I did well on the XM satellite radio. Uh, I think God intervenes here, uh, but something fortuitous happens here that turns me back the right direction, or at least begins to get me the right direction. On the way to the meetings, uh, I run into this girl at the agency who is like the party animal of party animals. And she bumps into me on the stairs and just blurts out like, what the heck did you drink last night? And what was so funny is she threw in last night. So I, in my great relief, figured that uh, she didn't realize that, in fact, I drank that at my desk about five seconds ago. Uh, and so I was super embarrassed because I knew what I had done, but, but I also was relieved because she thought it was last night. But I also recognized at that point, I guess vodka is something you can smell on people's breath. And this is all so freaking embarrassing. And now I've got to go do this meeting. And uh, I don't even think the meeting went all that well. And that's the other thing. And I'm sure you guys can relate to this as well. As you use substances to control your anxieties, there is a diminishing returns on that deal, right? After a while, you don't get the big relief. I don't know why that is. I don't know what the psychological reasons are for that. Certainly there is sort of this, um, you can become inured to the chemical or whatever it is, but it, it didn't even really help me in the meeting anyway. So at that point, uh, I realized, okay, so this alcohol thing is not manageable. I can't smell like I'm three sheets to the wind at work, and I can't do that all before 930. That is totally embarrassing. And what if I run into somebody like that girl that I worked with, that woman that I worked with that liked to party? Uh, that is embarrassing. And luckily, that's all that happened that time. And I can't be toting around bottles of vodka around with me everywhere. And it seemed like at this point, all that was happening with this alcohol thing as a way to mitigate my public speaking fears and my fears of flying and things like that uh, was uh, they were growing bigger anyway, my fears is the point. And so uh, around this time, uh, and like I just mentioned, fear of flying, I actually developed a fear of flying. I had a bad flat out of New York. This is six months before 9-11 and we hit terrible turbulence to the point where I think I, have the, I had the editor of Vogue sitting next to me out of, uh, I think it was Vogue. Or no, 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 it was the editor of GQ, sorry. And she was so scared that she gripped my shoulder uh, because we were hitting so much turbulence and asked if we were going to die, to which I looked at her and I said, uh, I don't think so, because truthfully, I didn't know I felt like we were going to die. <laughs> my partner was on that plane and I went back and saw him after this, uh, this turbulence and he had literally sweat dripping down his face. I've never been on a plane ride like that. It was really bad since then. And so... Uh, you know, I still wanted to succeed so badly, but I have this terrible fear. Alcohol's not going to work. Now I'm afraid of flying. And the two things I need to be successful in advertising, and this is again where I kind of say I think God is behind this. The two things I'm going to need to succeed in advertising are, one, I have to be able to fly to meetings, and then two, I have to be able to get through a meeting and present the ideas I've come up with. And they're the two things that I'm most afraid of in the whole world. And Again, I think someone was trying to get my attention. It was the two things I most needed in my mind to succeed and thrive in the uh, advertising career that I was trying to carve out for myself. And so these fears just kept growing larger and larger. The alcohol is not going to work. And so like an idiot, uh, what I decided to do next, and this is the next drug I tried, I tried Xanax. Now, I had heard Xanax is this powerful benzo, and I had heard that golfers take it and that they use it to bring down their anxiety when they're golfing and even violinists and professional professional kind of uh, 
violinists and people like that take it to kind of calm them down to get their hands under their control. Uh, also, it's odorless. Um, you know, and even better, a doctor prescribes it. So you know what? Uh, if a doctor gives you a prescription for it, I told myself it's more acceptable, right? Uh, and and at least I'm not drinking at my desk, and I'm not buying a thing on the street corner. Uh, of course, as time goes on, I now realize that uh, just because a doctor gives you a permission sh- uh, slip along with a substance doesn't mean much at all. Uh, perhaps you've started to see that as well. The, the pharmaceutical industry would be happy to hook you on some of their drugs they're pushing for a lot more money. Oftentimes, times, uh, in, insurance companies give them lots of money for it. Uh, or you give them lots of money for it. So they'd be happy to give you a drug with a per- permission slip from a doctor. So I thought I'd try Xanax, and here's what happened. The first time I tried it in a pitch for Sony PlayStation, guess what? I did great. Yep, worst thing that could have happened again. I did really well in the meeting, but I had the same problem again. I walked out and I thought, huh, I guess I need Xanax when I do meetings. Because I don't really know, like, could I have done what I just did without the Xanax? Uh, and it's the same trap, right? It's not alcohol, but it's it's now a pill. Uh, and I now have to figure out how I'm going to, it's not so hard to take pills with you, but I got to take these things, when to take them before meetings. Uh, and again, I think my world began to shrink again. What else, I kind of wondered, would I need uh, to take Xanax to cope. What other kind of interactions? Do I need to maybe to take it on the plane so I can deal with my fear of flying? So now i got to be on Xanax on the way to the meeting. Uh, do I need to take Xanax in internal agency meetings where I may have to speak? Uh, so what was happening at this point? And this is why I mentioned Jordan Peterson uh, earlier. He makes this really great point that, like, what happens is your fear just starts getting bigger and you keep getting smaller, right? Because rather than enlarging yourself in the face of your fear, it's not like the fear goes away, but rather than doing the things that would, would sort of empower you to face your fear, I keep choosing dependence on a chemical to cope with it. And so the fear is just getting bigger. Uh, and so not out long after using Xanax in a meeting, uh, I think I tried to dig in another meeting, and this time I kind of failed in that presentation. I was foggy. I was kind of dull. I kind of struggled to marshal my thoughts, and I didn't like the way that I felt. Uh, and worst of all, I was still nervous, right? The, the, so my fears are getting bigger. It seems like I'm getting scared of all social interaction now. And this little tiny pill is the thing that's going supposed to save me. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem and seem to be working. So it's at this point in my career that I abandon any hope that alcohol and even prescription drugs could work. You know, for one, the idea that I had to depend on a chemical to deal with my fears just really bothered me. That, like, like I said earlier, I, I guess that's who I am, right? I, I've got this problem, and uh, I guess I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm drug dependent, if I'm honest, because it's I'm needing it to get through life, in order to can't combat my anxieties, which again is why so many people I think use, uh, and these anxieties were only getting worse, and also far from liberating me from my fears. These drugs power over me only seem to grow along with my fears. And so I made a commitment and to basically walk away from these two things as solutions to deal with these anxieties of flying and public speaking. But the, there was another problem, which is, is what, what am I going to do? Uh, and I think it's here in our lives where um, real progress starts to get made, right? Uh, 
Because the easy solution, frankly, I mean, if, if we're honest, the easy solution is a tiny little white pill, right? A little pill from the prescription company. That's the secret. That's the secret to solving my internal problems, my emotional problems. And, or it's a glass of alcohol or it's, or it's cannabis, whatever it is. It's this quick fix that is going to solve uh, the problem. But I think when you're finally able to get to a point like I was, because it wasn't working, frankly, um, and the fears were only growing, when you finally give up and you realize that those things aren't going to work, it's when you're forced to start to take a different path to discover what can work. Uh, and so I talk about this a lot on, on uh, the podcasts I do, and I always want to bring it up because I think we're in a very uh, sort of anxious anxiety-filled world, a frankly scary world. And I think people uh, are feeling lots of anxiety right now. And I think all the statistics show that we're getting more and more uh, uh, drug-dependent. We're having bigger, more and more drug problems in our culture with alcohol. And here's this silly uh, Ad Age article even encouraging to drop LSD before a meeting, microdose. It's like, whatever. Um, but I always want to bring my Christian worldview into it. Uh, and I want to talk about how that road changed for me uh, and how it led me to where I'm at. And, and, and it taught me a lot about a couple of things. Um, one about how God works, but, but um, and that's also often in a very counterintuitive way. And one of the things that I learned through all this is that when he wants your attention, he, he often is going to bring you to your knees. Um, and there's this famous parable in the Bible, it's, and you've probably heard of it. It's uh, about um, the prodigal son. It's this kid that goes out, you know, takes his dad's inheritance and just spends it on hookers and drugs and parties. Uh, he wants his inheritance early so he can go out and he can just go out and partay. Uh, well, the end of that story, and I can relate to that, is that he spends himself into bankruptcy all the money and the women are gone and all the good times are gone and all the friends, the fake friends that you get when you're doing that are gone. And he ends up in a pig trough eating pig food uh, with pigs. You know, I think he's working on some, you know, some farm or something. And this is the job that he has feed the pigs and he's eating pig food when he um, finally reaches his bottom. And, and so that's what happens to me in, in, in so many ways. And I, I kind of, in my article, I wrote about this, Maybe it's not the best metaphor, but I said it kind of reminds me of like when you're sitting on a chair. I said stool, but like a chair, and one of the legs gets taken out. You can kind of balance with three legs, right? But you're kind of hobbled, uh, and you're holding it together. And if you take out another leg on that chair, you know, uh, you can kind of still keep the chair up maybe a little bit uh, with a little bit of effort, a lot of balance. You I mean, you're struggling really hard to hold it together. And then you get down to the third leg going out, and you got one leg, and now this chair ain't really working anymore. Uh, you're about to fall to the floor. Um, and that's kind of what was happening to me, right? I'm trying to cope with alcohol and Xanax and hold this together, uh, but it really isn't working. And then finally, God just takes away that last leg, right, on the chair. Uh, not because he hates you, mind you. Uh, and if you think about where you are in your own life, if that's happening to you, um, it's not because God hates you, but it's because he actually loves you enough to let you see how precarious and how bad your situation is. Um, and once that last leg on that chair goes, right, you, your problem is now completely beyond your control. You can't control it. But 
you know, you're trying desperately not to fall on your face, but despite your best efforts, it's impossible now, right? Uh, you, you kind of have nothing left to fall back on, uh, and everything that you've tried to keep that your life afloat to keep things in balance. It's just not working. And, and so that's what finally happens to me in a hotel room. And I've come full circle now from a pitch in 2001 for $100 million to another pitch. And I think this is around 2008, 2009, something like that. Uh, this time for a, uh, for a um, I think it was Quaker Oats, <laughs> funny enough strange brand to be pitching and it was another hundred million dollars and I'm back in the room with all the big wigs again now it's seven eight years later uh, I've been through this journey of trying alcohol I've been through this journey of trying Xanax I've probably sort of survived in the meantime by just kind of like I don't know just get muscling through meetings and probably having some decent meetings and some bad meetings but always having this terrible anxiety now I'm back in front of a room a big boardroom uh, it's in Chicago for Quaker Oats. It's a $100 million pitch. And all the most important people in the agency are going to be there again. And it's the same fears are going to be in that room with me, right? Only this time, I don't have alcohol. I've kind of refused that option. Uh, I've, I've kind of refused any help from something like a Xanax. And I don't have a shred of confidence left in myself at this point, Right. I'm going towards this meeting, and I look back, and I actually, you know, I give myself some credit for actually, uh, I don't know, taking my hand and forcefully applying pressure to the back of my neck and forcing myself into this meeting. But truthfully, man, I want to melt inside. I, When I say scared, I'm talking like uh, just utterly freaked out. And I remember, I think I was still smoking at that time, and I remember I was sort of pacing in my bedroom before I was going downstairs to this big pitch. I got a cigarette in my hand, and I'm just pacing back and forth. My fear is just spiraling like a feedback loop, right? And that is when the moment of kind of the fourth leg on the chair gets pulled out from underneath me. It's the moment when I just I just give up. And I, I'll never forget how this happened, but I was utterly exhausted, and I just fell to the floor to my knees. And it's interesting. It's like that God does sort of bring us to our knees, at sometimes it's just an interesting position to be in before the king, right? You get on your knees. Well, that's where I ended up. I ended up on my knees, and I remember crying out audibly in my room. And I remember just saying out loud, these are the words that I said. I just said, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. So, because I think what I had done is I had just moved from alcohol to a pill to whatever else I was trying at that point. It wasn't substances, but it was probably the latest self-help book or um, whatever the whatever the thing was, uh, just muscling through or trying to maybe limit my role in the meeting or I don't know, probably just trying all kinds of techniques. I can't even remember anymore, but I wasn't using anything. But I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't outrun this problem anymore. I was tired and beat up. And so... At the time, I don't even think I understood exactly what I was doing, but clearly I was crying out to God. And I wrote in the article I wrote about this, it was less of a formal prayer than it was just kind of a spiritual flare gun, uh, just kind of shot into the air. And it's the kind of thing that I think you do when you've come to the end of every idea you have to get out of your situation, right? Um, You have no more ideas on how to manage your anxieties no more ideas on how to manage your life. 
and I, it was at the end of believing that there were any answers or any way out. Uh, and now, <laughs> in a funny point, funny way, being on my knees, I was really trapped, right? In front of me is this meaning that I couldn't avoid. There's no going back. There's no solace or comfort, uh, even fake comfort that I can seek from any drug. All I can do is cry out for help to a God. And I even wrote in this article that I wrote that it wasn't even a God that I was following at the time, right? Uh, it wasn't really, God didn't really have any meaningful role in my life. I knew that I believed there was a God. Uh, I had sort of the Christian traditions I grew up in, but I wasn't following God, right? So I managed to get myself into the room downstairs, despite all this, uh, with every fiber in my body screaming that I should stand up uh, and run for the boardroom doors. Uh, I remember just, you know, you see that everybody in the room is doing their little part of the presentation. And as this, the baton's getting ready to be passed to you, that is literally what I wanted to do. I, I actually told my wife when I got home, I said, when it got to me, I wanted to stand up and run for the boardroom doors. Uh, and at that point, something very, very amazing happened. Just like the time, the first time I did used alcohol, just like the first time I used Xanax, I actually crushed this meeting, just crushed it and crushed it in a way that not even alcohol could have ever done or Xanax could have ever enhanced my meeting to do this. I got up and I just remember it just came out of me. I just, I just delivered and hit every point. I remember at one point my boss at the time looked up and just goes, do you need a water? Because I had been going for like 35 minutes, 40 minutes and just was on fire in that room. And it was, it was fun. Um, it, it was an amazing feeling. And I, the fear left me halfway through this presentation. And the best part of it was that I didn't use anything to do that. Right. Uh, and, and, it, and, it, and it was funny. I got back to the agency at TBWA Shiat Day, and I remember my boss at the time in front of the agency said, uh, here's what happened at the pitch. And I don't know what got into Brett Craig, but whatever it was, it was amazing. And even at the time, I don't think I realized it, but I, I actually think I know what got into me. I think my surrender and falling to my knees and asking God for help, which is what frankly, he's waiting for from all of us. Just to admit that I've come to the end of myself. I don't really have the answers. Uh, the goals that I have in my life are not achievable because of the fears and anxieties that I have. And I'm out of ideas, God. And I'm, I'm basically calling out to you. Um, and I, I, I love the fact that God in the Bible says you can call me Abba, which means Father. Abba, Father. And crying out for your dad, uh, essentially, the, the, the creator that created you um, and in order for us to cry out for our father our heavenly father sometimes we have to be brought to our knees to do that and so that's why this article so bothered me because it offers this sed seductive lie you know I um, said up front that I think that this, the adults and corporations We've let this generation down, and we have. This article from Ad Age is a case study in what I mean, and, and that's why I'm sharing this story with you because I want to warn you that an article or anybody telling you that this is the way to get through a meeting, as somebody who rose to a chief creative officer with this incredible fear that I was dealing with, I want you to know that it is possible uh, and, and that the answer is not chemicals. The answer is not substances, right? The, the truth is, and, and this is the big thing, I think, 
to keep in your mind is the truth is things, our fears are actually, they're huge. They loom like Goliath in our minds, right? And they're different for everybody. And, and the truth is, for me, it was public speaking. And I just want you to know, if you're a creative listening to this or a person in corporate America, public speaking is hard, right? It's not the number one fear for nothing. And I just want to dial into this fear for a second. But dealing with any fear is hard, like public speaking. And there's an easy thing that you can try to do, but that's a, it's a lie to think that, it, that there's an easy fix, like a pill, like alcohol, like microdosing LSD, like this ad age article. That's what I hate about this article. Now, anyone who says there's an easy fix to facing your fear, it's just a simple switch that you can just flip. Like public speaking is offering you a band-aid at best uh, and, 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 and lifetime dependence on something at worst. Uh, using chemicals and substances to overcome anxieties and fears is a trap. And it's a trap that some never come out of. And I got to tell you that uh, without going into names, I had at least I lost at least two creatives, and I mentioned this in the article. I lost them to um, dependence on chemicals. Uh, what started as probably recreational fun for them, uh, little by little, took over their life. And mostly, what they were dealing with later in life that I could tell uh, was not uh, they were they were not doing it for fun. They weren't doing it. Uh, they were doing it to deal with anxiety. They were do it dealing with it doing these substances to deal with trauma, with anxiety, loneliness during COVID in one case of this one person. And they died from it. They, they, it killed them. And so anybody who would set a trap for you by telling, you know what, microdose LSD, take cannabis. And I know they'll say, oh, well, that's not addictive. I'm telling you anything that you associate in your life that's a substance that you start to give credit to it for getting through your challenges and your anxieties, that is going to become mentally addictive for you. Uh, so that's why I really, really despise the Sad Age article uh, because I think the magazine, you know, even though it's you know just a shell or a husk of its former self from the past, it's still kind of an industry thought leader. It still at least positions itself that way. And it's offering advice that is pushing young advertising professionals towards hell. Um, towards your own destruction. Uh, and, 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 and I didn't see any leaders in the ad industry criticizing it. Um, I don't know why. Are we that corrupt at this point that we can't tell young people that there are no shortcuts? Uh, there are no ways to get great at things like public speaking. There are no ways to become a better uh, creative or whatever your position is in your company other than hard work and doing the work to get better at things. So... In my case, when I gave up doing, uh, using alcohol or using Xanax, which it didn't last long, by the way, because I hated it so much, what it was doing to me, what I ended up doing, and this is what I said earlier, is you start to begin to find the real solutions. And in my case, the real solutions were exercise. Uh, I just want to tell you guys this. If you're a young creative and you're dealing with anxiety uh, when you're trying to present and things like that, a little secret trick that no one ever tells you exercise. Go run three or four miles, walk five or six miles, get on a treadmill, get your heart rate up. I'm telling you, it's super healthy for you. You're going to feel great when you're done. I used to come down to meetings and nobody even knew this. If I had a meeting at 8 a.m. in the morning in New York for Pepsi, I would have already been on the treadmill for five miles. Did I enjoy it? Nope. But when I was done, it felt so good. 
And when I went to the meetings, when I got rid of some of that excess energy, I spoke so well uh, in meetings. It's just a little trick. I'm, I'm just telling you, it's a little insight on how to be a better public speaker. Get rid of that excess energy so that your engine uh, isn't idle, you know, it's idling at a lower level and it isn't going to go up in red line in the middle of a meeting. Your adrenaline's not going to get the best of you and, and freeze you up. I promise you it works. A second thing that I would just say on public speaking, and if I could just give you two tips, um, that'll make you a better one and help you deal with anxiety around this issue if you have anxiety, besides exercise, is one of the great secrets of great presenters. And I got a lot of people through my years uh, of presenting often would tell me, man, you are such a good presenter. And little do they know that I had this incredible fear around presenting. One of the tricks that I had and that all great presenters know is you must practice and I don't just mean the practice in front of the room and the pitch with everybody else. That's, that's one thing, sure. Uh, I'm talking about practice before you go to your meetings. And that means in a mirror. I don't care if it's in a mirror, just in your hotel room. If it's in your room because you're doing remote work now, it's all the same. Stand up or sit down, however you want to do it and pretend you're presenting it. As you do it and walk through the deck as you're doing it, as you do that, you're going to discover that certain slides uh, you haven't mastered how to talk about them. You're going to find little problems and you're going to work out your transitions. You're going to work out those mistakes and you're going to smooth out your presentation um, to the point when you go to do it. And here's the goal. The goal is that you know it so well. This is how many times I think you should practice it a number of times um, that you know it so well that you actually will present it very naturally and you probably won't even present it. And I never did like you practice it in your room exactly. Because by now, you know the material so much, guess what? Even though you're nervous, even though all the anxiety is still there, you just know what's coming next. You know what slide's coming next. You know what, uh, you've worked out those problem transitions, and it's all because you practice. So exercise, practice, they're much harder than taking a pill. They're much harder than drinking a shot glass of vodka. But you know what? They're freedom. They are, they're going to make you feel better. You're going to get such a high from presenting well, and you're going to do it naturally. And it's, it's going to liberate you. And it's going to, you're never going to lose the fear. I always tell people 100% of public speaking, because you know what, if you care about the meeting and you care about your idea, you obviously get a bit of a heart rate going up when you go to present. But what you are um, going to do is like, again, bringing up Jordan Peterson, you're going to enlarge yourself, right? You, you're not going to diminish yourself through taking a substance which, make, which makes you smaller and makes the pill and the alcohol bigger. You're going to enlarge your self-confidence uh, and you are going to do much better. So um, that would be just the, the two pieces of advice on public speaking uh, if you struggle with that or advice on just drug dependence in general. Um, don't think that that anxiety can be dealt with with these things. It is going to put you into a rabbit hole that you can't get out of. Um, instead, seek the sort of fix to the spiritual problem that's happening inside of you. Uh, the anxiety is coming from somewhere. And all the prescription companies, uh, prescription drug companies and alcohol and these drugs that are being offered to us and legalized and we're told that these are going to be the fixes, these are Band-Aids and they just are Faustian bargains that are going to just damn you deeper into the problem. Um, instead, find the spiritual fix. And so I'm just going to end here. There's a verse uh, in Matthew. It's Matthew 11:28, and I And I love this verse 
in these words from Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I I love that idea. Um, He's inviting you to come to him and just get on your knees. I think God loves just a honest heart, right? Somebody that just calls out to him for help. Uh, You have a spiritual father in heaven that's waiting to have a relationship with you. uh, And it requires our surrender. Uh, Just like I was brought to my knees in that hotel one day. uh, It was the beginning of a change in my life uh, that was so positive and so good. And here he is, Christ is saying that if you're weary, if you're tired, if you're sick of all this anxiety, if you've run out of ideas, uh, come to me, man. I'm, I'm here to help you carry that cross. Uh, I'm going to help you carry those burdens that you're walking around with, and I'll give you rest from them. That's his promise. And when he makes a promise, he always does it. So if you come to him in a clean, contrite heart, and you honestly uh, commit to changing your life and turning from the direction you're going, Uh, really commit to, uh, really the word is repentance, right? To turning from the direction you're going and moving a new direction back towards your creator, no longer being at war with your creator, but now following your creator um, and doing the things that he instructs you to do, you can have rest. And I got to tell you, um, it is nice to have rest from your anxiety. I I, I just got to believe so many of you out there right now are dealing with um, tremendous anxiety. Uh, during this pandemic, uh, seeing what's going on in the news, seeing the division inside of our country. Um, Jesus promises that in the middle of a storm, he will give you rest. And so I want to end there today. Don't believe that Ad Age article. It's junk. It's bad advice. The industry is giving you so much bad advice right now on so many things. It's broken. It's corrupt. Ignore it uh, and take the harder path that actually leads to freedom. Uh, Don't get stuck in a substance that is going to spiral out of control for so many people. I hope you guys have a great week next week or a great weekend and a great week next week. Uh, Thanks for joining the AdWoke podcast. Remember, you're not crazy. They are.